And so I decided that I'm gonna show him that I'm gonna write a book and become famous. Welcome to We Can't Print This. It's a podcast telling the story you don't know behind the story you do know. And you should know. And you should know. And you will definitely know because after this podcast, you will go out and read that story. I'm Fiona McCann. And I am Eden Dawn. And joining us this week is Juhei Kim, who is the author of the epic saga an amazingly beautiful book called Beasts of a Little Land. And I don't say that lightly, do I? I no, do not. she's very judgmental. I am very judgmental about books, but this is really a stunning book. It's a beautiful story that spans generations, and it's set against the backdrop of the Korean independence movement, which is something I didn't know a lot about. And now I know more, and it prompted me to sort of dive into that history a little bit, which was really interesting. And also... Don't just take it from me, it was described by Kirkus, the notoriously curmudgeonly Kirkus, I will add, <laughs> as a literary masterpiece, so not too shabby. We have her this week to talk about writing motivation. Specifically, she gets into revenge writing as her motivation. Fiona, what is your writing motivation? I'm just motivated by deadlines. I can stare at a blank screen for days on end, and then I'm like, I'd love to write this piece that I've had on my desk for forever, but I have to clean the microwave, which I don't yeah, even have. Yeah, spoiler alert, you always know we're really on deadline when we do our BuzzFeed quizzes. BuzzFeed quizzes, yes. Yeah, that's how you know it. That's how you know Shannon. you're a real writer, is you're procrastinating on a deadline by doing a BuzzFeed quiz to find out which golden girl you are. That's that's how you know. Sophia. Yeah, you I'm are Sophia. Sophia. Yeah, I'm Sophia. I mean, also, she's the smallest one. Yeah, and I'm a Blanche, even though I wish I was sluttier, but I'm a Blanche at heart. You are a Blanche, but you do, yeah, you're a Blanche. Yeah, I got a slutty energy, even if it doesn't, <laughs> I don't what? follow through with it, but I got a slutty energy. I will tell you, my writing motivation, because I don't know how to write fiction, all of my writing has been journalist writing, essay writing, storytelling writing. It's always things from my own life. So here's what I do instead to find my writing motivation is I put myself in odd situations in order to have a story to tell or something to write about. Can you give us an example <laughs> of that there, Eden? Okay. I was searching something on our Slack and it came up where I specifically had told you that I was allowing myself to be in this situation because it might make a good essay one day. <laughs> <laughs> and and you'll probably remember it and I don't want to out myself, but here's, here's what people need to know. And I, outside of just writing about fashion, have styled many fashion editorials, commercials, a lot of stuff with bands over the years. And I was styling a photo shoot for a well-known band, a band that... Uh, oh, I know what band. Yes. So I was styling a photo shoot for a well-known band. And if you will recall, the lead singer, who who is a grown man... You're being so diplomatic I'm being right so now. diplomatic. Do you he, think they're going to sue us? He did not know his shoe size, while I'm trying to pull clothing while they're touring around the world and doing all this stuff, the grown man did not know his shoe size. So here's what he did do is he took off. <laughs> <laughs> I know where this is going and it's so ridiculous. I don't think anyone could guess. <laughs> he took off his shoe 
And he put his foot on a piece of paper. So he took off his shoe. Did he look no, he at the didn't. sole of his no, shoe? No, he didn't. Or maybe the bit on the inside? Nope. He took off his shoe and he put his foot on a piece of paper and he traced his foot with a pen and then had an assistant take a picture of the piece of paper and sent me the text message of his foot drawing. So that you would understand <laughs> so the size of understand. his foot. Did they? Okay. And you immediately saw that picture and you were like, well, it's 38 and a half. I oh don't know what God. the frame of reference is. Was it an eight and a half by 11? Was that a legal piece of paper? Was it a random sheet of butcher paper? I don't know. There wasn't a quarter there for reference or anything. Oh, it was just gosh. a vague outline of a foot that someone sent to me because a grown man, because he plays in a band, can't know his shoe size. So that was what I was dealing with while trying to actually get the shoes for the shoot that had very very detailed requirements. And while going through this pain, I remember slacking you and you were like, you should quit. And I was like, no, because it might make a good story. <laughs> so this is the things that we do for writing motivation. That, that's what I feel my writing motivation is, is often submitting myself into a situation so that something happens, which I am compelled to then have an interesting tale to write about. To put pen to paper afterwards. To put pen to paper. I just have to go back to the fact that he took off his shoe and then was like, what is the most logical next step? And then nobody, this is the problem with people who get quite famous as well. Nobody, his assistant didn't go, that's a bad idea. I felt like I could have said so many more things, but in but truth. But you would think I'd let you know. You know, sometimes <laughs> it's just better to not say it all. Say less. It's not our motto. I have a drink. But in an interview, it is our motto, actually, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Um, I know it's really difficult, but I, yeah, I th it's so funny because when I was thinking about that, I was like, what's my motivation? Money. And then as you so rightfully pointed out, you're like, you've hardly made any money over the course of your life in journalism. But here's the deal. A book, as I just have my second one going off to print, is a different thing because you pitch it and you have to be excited enough about an idea to, to be in it. And it's just a different thing. It's not just deadline driven. So I feel like Juhei's story is really interesting because you need something. To quote at basically every drag queen that's ever been in trouble on RuPaul's Drag Race, you need something to light that fire under your ass to keep going. And hers was revenge. That's a good one. What you'll hear from Juhei is how that kicked something off that then grew so far beyond it, which I think is a great thing. We can, You can be motivated to do something, and then the thing takes a life of its own, right? That's it. That's it. I'm so wise. That's it. So keep listening. Get excited about revenge. And what you could produce and if the, you really harness that. Yeah, and in a healthy way. Super healthy. Not in a true crime, she killed her husband kind of way, but in a healthy, become a best-selling novelist amazing way. Write a literary masterpiece. Write a literary kind of masterpiece. Way. Nailed it. Welcome, Juhei. Thanks so much, Eden and Fiona. I'm so happy to be here. That must have been exciting when you read that you had written a literary masterpiece. Were you like, yep? Uh, it was. And yes, Kirkus does have that reputation for anybody <laughs> who doesn't know the ins and out of book publishing. So it was an honor. And yeah, I've been excited about a lot of these reviews, especially coming from around the world, to have seen my book reviewed by Figaro in France or to go on interviews in 
national TV in Seoul, all those experiences have been really memorable. You're an internationally acclaimed literary master. That's amazing. And for a debut novel, that's so exciting. It is. It truly, truly is. I would have to say the highs have been higher than I ever imagined, and the lows have been a lot lower than I also imagined. Oh, interesting. And is that because you just felt like the the biggest hard time would be getting the book actually out, and then once it was out, you were like, now the roller coaster goes, and you just didn't know what to expect? Right. I completely didn't know what to expect. And pre-publication, I had talked to other writer friends who said that when their first book came out, they um, curled up into a ball, didn't want to meet anybody, and really went into a spiral. Um, Some of these friends told me I booked a therapist months in advance before the publication, and I was all ready to go because I had poured all of my soul into this one book. And remember, it's around 30 years of my life experience and who I am as a person that went into this one book. And I was so proud and I was ready to face the world. But um, what I didn't understand was that writing a book is a very private and intimate process. Mm -hmm. It's just between you and the book. And that space was so sacred and so freeing But once it leaves your hands and becomes this thing that people can buy and have opinions on or, you know, the publisher can package as a product, you don't have that kind of control or relationship over it. And um, that was an eye opening experience. But I will say that what made it all worthwhile is the relationship with readers. I think it was Amos who said, you can always tell the real fans because their hands start shaking. And when I heard that, pre-publication I was like well you think you're a lot but he does yes I don't have that arrogant attitude but when I see somebody who is crying because she connected with me through my book and now she's meeting me in person like it's it's very healing for me It is such an interesting thing, too, because you can never predict how people are going to interact with your writing. So much of writing is it's a you in front of a laptop, often questioning all of your life's choices. (laughs) Going, what did I do? Why am I here? And then you release it to the world and then they have their own thoughts on it. I do like this idea of getting a therapist lined up, though. I really think that's smart. (laughs) I think you need a therapist lined up for the writing part, too, though. I mean, for everything. (laughs) I would recommend lining a therapist up for everything, but that's very smart. Um, But we're here really to talk about the story behind the story, as we like to call it. I know that you've talked in a lot of interviews about how the book was inspired by your maternal grandmother. Uh, Grandfather. Oh, grandfather, I beg your pardon, who was an independence fighter Mm -hmm. um, in Korea during the colonial period. Is that right? But I know that that was not the only motivation, shall we say, for writing the book. Can you tell me a little bit about what is the thing that really motivated you to get it out there. Right. So, you know, my grandfather was the inspiration. But what inspires us can or doesn't have to overlap with what motivates us. Mm -hmm. And what motivated me to write a book, which is quite an undertaking, was a far less noble person (laughs) in my life. I had fallen in love and had this passionate love affair with a man that I met in New York in my late 20s. 
and late 20s late 20s <laughs> such an awkward time it's it such a time for a bad love affair it really is. Is. yeah it, because <laughs> because you, i think you're at that stage where you know who you are but you also still have that incompleteness and you know how to love better mm-hmm. than you know your early 20s puppyish love so i had become a woman at this point but despite the fact that emotionally i was mature um, or maturing I had yet to find myself really professionally. So at that time, I had quit my job in the editorial department of a renowned New York publisher some years ago, and I was surviving on savings and also freelancing. So I was really, really in financially a bad shape. I was in l- New York as yes. well, which is yeah. not a cheap city. Not a good city to to be living off savings, probably. Right. So um, I met this man, and he was German. And he probably still is. <laughs> <laughs> He's alive, that is. <laughs> um, German guy, um, very striking looking, tall and handsome, I suppose, in a conventional way. Um, I love the way the shade's <laughs> coming out now. I mean, if you like that sort of thing. <laughs> right. So I met him on a summer night and I had said goodbye to my college friend who I went out with that night and I was texting my friend, hey, good night, and walking to the subway station. And as I was texting, there were a couple of lesbians on the side of the road, and they called out to me and they said, oh, you look great, honey, today. So I said to them, well, thank you. And I kept walking. And this man came from behind me, past me, and then turned around and said, you shouldn't talk to everybody you meet in New York. <gasps> I yeah. thought you were going to tell me he immediately agreed with them because that would be chivalrous, but that's okay. Also, Agre- <laughs> aggressive opener. Aggressive. Just starting out with a declarative, like just demanding of you like, at that moment. Yeah, and also telling me for you to give me advice. Yeah. yeah. So um, I said, well, you're talking to me right now. And this way we started talking, and even in the dim light, I could see that he had these bright blue eyes, and he was, of course, handsome. So I kept talking to him, and we had a drink. And Wait, hold on. What? You, like, skipped a lot there. What? <laughs> you read on the, you're on the street, and he's like, don't talk to strangers, and the next uh, thing, you're in a bar. And, and he, he kept saying some other things, and I kept saying some other things, and he was like, do you want to go for a drink? Okay, fine. This guy warned you not to talk to strangers. Know, and the next thing you're off having a drink with him. Oh my gosh. I feel like there's something in our late 20s where bossy men seemed mature. There was a thing about like their bossiness that I mistook for maturity. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Perhaps I'm speaking from my own trauma. But no, no, no. I think that makes a lot of sense. And also because I have such a strong personality, in order for me to be attracted to somebody, I need a level of confidence and he provided that confidence so So, maybe that's it is bossiness can be mistaken for confidence right which is not the same thing right because you can be very confident and not bossy or or rude or demanding that's where maturity comes in i think (laughs) yes full circle we've gotten to the bottom of it we got to the bottom of it but i didn't know all this i was still young you were still young of course i'm figuring it out right now in this moment right (laughs) 
that's how we met. And later on, he revealed to me that he had actually seen me walking toward him. And I was on my phone, so I didn't even know that he was he crossed me. And then he turned around. He was like, I need to talk to that girl. And so he turned around. He was following me. And then the lesbians um, flirted with me a little bit. And he was like, this is my chance to talk to her. So he passed me by and then turned around and said, don't talk to everybody. He made it seem so casual. And it was all so planned. I know. Mm. And how scary. I was just looking on my phone. And so this is a big problem because I had this romantic idea that love is like, you know, love at first sight and he's giving me all these feelings and um, these dramatic entrances have happened quite a few times in my life where these handsome men were pursuing me. But now I think the word love bombing comes to mind. <laughs> the love bomb. Um, yeah, but the, the love bomb. But, but that wasn't popularized until only a few years ago. I think we're just starting to figure I think we're just starting to figure it out because yeah. it felt again when you're young it feels fairy tale like. That's right. And it's so easy to be swept off your feet in that moment. I and know. when somebody has sort of enough feeling for both of you in the initial moments, but this is why we need language like love bomb to mm -hmm. come into the lexicon in time before we experience it. I mean, if only it had become popular in my late twenties. I know things would, have, but we might not have had beasts of a little land. That's so. true. Oh my gosh! Yes, uh, don't yeah. even say it out loud. Weren't you just telling me? Uh, didn't you have a love bomber? Many. I've been raised to the ground by love bombs. <laughs> I tell you, I did have a love bomber who was also in finance. Was this this guy was in finance? Yes, right? he was. The finance guys with the love bombs. I think it's part of the mo. It's very efficient, is yeah. the thing. Yeah, it's a full love bomb, and then you do something vaguely human, like you fart in the bed or something, and then the love bomb dissipates. It's very. <laughs> it's true, and I think it makes sense because the finance guys they are self-selecting group of go-getters, and they're mm -hmm. very goal-oriented, and they're all about acquiring. So, um, your love is even something that they acquire. Mm -hmm. And they get their money aggressively as well. But for being a finance person, he had other poetic sensibilities that I found very touching. And I mean, I guess like he's allowed to have more than one dimension. <laughs> a banker poet, that's lethal. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> well, um, I don't think he actually read poetry, but he has, he said some meaningful things. Um, and in fact, I think... A lot of the romantic aspects that made it onto the pages of Beast were inspired by him. He is a direct inspiration behind Hancho, this hot but ultimately self-centered man that the main character Jade falls in love pretty much for the rest of her life. So she is too good for him. I'm just saying. I think a lot of the times in life, women are too good for men in general in love because I think women give more but you know this is all individual i think men are perfectly capable of being just as selfless so, of course sure, they are and sure. i agree with you <laughs> sure, of course sure. they are and i agree with you <laughs> i mean that's that character is so disappointing in the story because i think in some ways and this, this is a little bit like you're talking about the fairy tale right you we've absorbed the fairy tale and i'm reading it in a book and i'm like of course this is this beautiful love story and then he is so disappointing and she loves him forever and it's yeah i'm mad at him so you count it as a love at first sight that's how you feel that of that story uh for sure yeah, yeah. and you know 
even after being older, I, I am 35 now and have had other experiences. I am a lot more disillusioned about love, but I would say that, yeah, I would still call it love at first sight because love is imperfect. But insofar as love is an imperfect thing and it's illusory, I think it was true to an extent and for both of us and he felt completely for me as well mm-hmm. but um while we passionately like fell into this deep intimacy it also didn't work out largely because he found me not successful enough for him boo 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 uh, i i remember he came over to my how, wait, how long were you together before Oh, uh, you know, honestly, even that partesi, maybe several months okay. of, you know, passionate love affair. I remember he came over to my Washington Heights sublet room that was like really, really bad. And um, at that time, again, he was a banker making a lot more money than me. And eventually he found a job at Goldman in San Francisco, which was like his dream. Mm. And I'm rolling my eyes here for the listeners. Yeah, we're all rolling our eyes. Our eyes jobbing at Goldman is just whatever. That's not poetic. Happy for you, but nah, it's as far from a dream to me as possible. You know, I I said a cheerful farewell. I was like, okay, goodbye. You know, like I always knew that you wanted that, so good for you and goodbye. But later on. After he'd already left, I found out from a mutual friend who was mutual friends with this other Korean young woman that he may be seeing her and may have been seeing her when he was sort of still seeing me. But but not that we were ever like exclusive or it was not like a boyfriend-girlfriend thing ever. But, you know, um, just imagine hearing this from my friend, Lisa, to whom I had described this person as this great lost love, like we couldn't work it out. But then Lisa knew this other woman who was a Harvard business grad and worked for a hedge fund. And I've seen her photos. I may have even hung out with her at a party. But the only thing that I I did strongly feel was that she wasn't as beautiful as I was. <laughs> she surely wasn't. I think that's good for the self-esteem to feel that way. And people are allowed, if you're not exclusive, it's fine if people are dating multiple people. I've done that when you're not exclusive, no problem. But it's unusual, or maybe the red flag comes up for me when you see a pattern, when like you and the other person they're dating seem quite similar or look similar. That's always a little strange to me. I didn't enjoy the Korean part yes. at all. Yeah. You know, Red just, flaggy. Yeah. What's up with that? Also, but come on, is it a, okay? Look, I understand the non-exclusivity, but like you, it's hard for me to balance the love bomb with the non-exclusivity. Like, are you love bombing everybody? Are you just love bombing me, but you're sleeping with everybody? Like I'm confused about that a little bit. <clears throat> Yeah, men are confusing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if you're saying all those things that uh, seem to be very on a soul level, yeah. then yes, it's deeply misleading to be saying those things to somebody and also seeing somebody else. Like you're either lying or you have this problem of feeling deep soul connections with everybody you meet. <laughs> so what? It, which which is it going to be? And how are you functioning lying. in the world if you're just in love with everyone you this see? This lying. That's uh, what it is. Yeah, that part is... 
I see what you're saying. Because there is the casual dating where yeah, you're like, totally yeah, fun. we're going to the movies. We have fun. We hang out sometimes. And then there's different between like looking somebody in the eyes and saying like, oh, yes, there I've was never a- met anyone like you. Oh, ever. I have heard so many declarations of deep soul connection. I mean, this guy said I would be happy to just marry you and have children with you. Like, that, okay, that, yeah. Yeah, like, That's okay, different. yes. So you've gone too far. You can't be seeing other people when you're doing that. I'm just saying. Right. Or don't say that shit. Don't say it. Don't say it. (laughs) Yeah. So um, at that moment, I realized that, you know, this person, obviously very ambitious, materialistic, because that's a path that he pursues, also found a woman that he felt was a better partner to him, probably because she was more successful in the worldly sense. And so... I decided that I'm going to show him that I'm going to write a book and become famous. And I am going to write his name in the acknowledgments (gasps) so that he will know just exactly how satisfying it is. (laughs) You wrote a book motivated in part by spite. And I've never loved anything more. Because to be honest, I feel like probably most of my life decisions have been made based on an ex telling me that I couldn't do something. What a better motivation for any of us. Eden, you too? Oh my God. (laughs) I'm telling you, I feel like most of my career is, yes. I could list out the very first job I took when I became fashion editor at Portland Monthly. The man I was dating at the time said, I don't think you should do it. Sounds like a lot of work. Sounds like it probably wouldn't be that much money. I don't think it's a good idea. Was the implication that it would be a little bit too much for you? Uh, I think he didn't see the value in it where I was like, this is journalism. What else did he want you to do with your life? I don't know. I don't know. I think I will say before we broke up, he, I feel like, admitted he was wrong on that level. But every man... Up until my husband was upset at my ambition level, I think. Mm. And then, ironically, I was a person who did not believe in love at first sight. I didn't think that happened. I was like, no, you get to know people. You develop friendship. And then I was backstage, and my friends were playing a show at the Crystal Ballroom. It was before I'm an ominous show. And a man walked in to the dressing room and was the most beautiful man I'd ever seen in my life. And I remember every single thing he was wearing and... Now I am married to that man. And this year is our 10-year anniversary of being together after I literally was like, love at first sight does not exist. And we walked into a room and electricity pulsed. Oh, it exists. It exists. It exists. (laughs) Unfortunately, I was uh, still dating someone else, and that was inconvenient to fall in love at first sight Mm -hmm. when you are in another relationship. I did not know that could happen. Uh, So, Well, you didn't string the other person along and say like, hey, new man, I want to marry you, but I'm also going to keep this other person going forever and ever. I'm no, just that's true. It, it, it all worked out as it should be, but it is funny. Um, it is funny how I feel like I went the other way of not believing in it and then it existed. But I think that um, spite, which sounds like a petty emotion, and maybe it is, I don't care. I think spite is a wonderful motivator because it burns within you and you're like, I'm going to do this. And, and it isn't just about them. It's about yourself, right? You're like, I'm going to do this for me. This person thinks I can't do something. I'm going to do it. And you did it. I and mean, you that's did it. the amazing thing. And you put his name in the acknowledgments. Oh, yes. First and last name. 
I did. Oh! <laughs> I mean, I have them here. I'm not going to read them out. Oh, but I my did find God, it. I love I, it. You're a brilliant. Well, what? not only did you like write a, a book, but you wrote an incredible book. I mean, I feel like I've had the fantasy where I'm like, I'm going to write something amazing and I'm going to be award winning. And then like I squeeze out an article and that was about it. And <laughs> my revenge fantasies <laughs> have not come to fruition. This was knocking it out of the park. Did you have a sense that you were like, and then he will, like, I keep imagining this scene where he's like walking along a New York street with his girlfriend or wife or whatever. I've decided. <laughs> a hedge funder. <laughs> yeah. Some, you know, and they're obviously dressed very expensively because that's the path they've chosen. But then he does a double take because he passes a bookstore and there's this huge picture of you. Maybe a life-size cutout. Life-size cutout. so hot. Oh, with a line of people waiting to buy your book. And with he, trembling hands. Oh, Fiona. <laughs> Eat it. You guys are indulging me too much. I, I, I haven't had this type of fantasy because once the book was actually at that stage of um, pre-publication where they were asking me, hey, can you give us acknowledgements? Um, can you check the copy edits and all that stuff? By that point, my life had already progressed beyond needing to seek revenge upon him. He did DM me on Instagram. <gasps> slid on in. He slid on in. Stop. Yeah. After the book came out? Um, it was before. and it, it was, in fact, before I even sold it. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to brag about that. But he DM'd me and said, hey, are you in Portland now? And I looked at the handle, which was something i think <laughs> that's all we'll say that's all we'll say something something um and i thought this seems like him but i don't know and i said who are you <laughs> and he was like you didn't you who are him amazing yeah. of course i yeah. have to show that i didn't think about you at all yeah there's so many me. in my dms now you are yeah. a stone cold fox and i love it so much and then he made the mistake of clarifying who he was because I went on this tirade of like my recent accomplishments. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. And you I just sent him your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> uh, you know, that would have been easier, but I, I did a list. I did a um, hearty list. And um, one thing that I do remember not doing was saying, I am with somebody who's richer than you. Although, I, I mean, I just can't use my partner for those purposes of seeking revenge upon my exes. That's but very honorable. I, yeah, I know. I, I have class. You. you have <laughs> class. That was restrained of you. I, it was. What did he say back? I saw that he saw my message, <gasps> oh. but he didn't say anything back, which is fine. I mean, thank God for Instagram because... On, on your iPhone, iMessages let you to block that red receipt. Mm -hmm. But on DM, there is no such thing. And God, Instagram, I love you for that. Yeah, oh, he got the times. message. Yeah, he got the message. He got and it. And he was floored by your list of accomplishments. And just didn't even know what to do. Didn't know what to do with himself. Uh, you know, I, I bet, he, I don't know if he was amazed by how successful I was, but I think he was amazed by how much rancor I still had in my heart. He probably thought, well, that's all in the past. Like, I can reach out to you as a friend or whatever. <laughs> but I'm like, no, there's no whatever in my life. No. So, Love bomber. Yeah. Mm. You don't Get come away. back from that. Yeah. God, he might have started it again if you hadn't put the brakes on him. I think this was wise. But privately, though, my need to 
show myself to people who have rejected me in the past. And it's just, it's not just that one person. It's a lot of people, right? Like people that I worked for in publishing, for example, I mean, they really trampled on me and broke my spirit in half. And I had this will to show them how far I can go in life. But once you pass them, and I, I believe, I don't care how much money has in his bank account, I've passed him. Like, yes, you, know, you have. I, I'm the person with the book that's all around the world, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm... We're not know. having him on our podcast, are we? Nope. nope. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's a, quite a traveler. And I know that this book is all over the airport. So he, if he flies ever again, like he'll see it in the airports, but it's also being turned into a series. So, Even this just gets better what? and better. So, uh, I feel like with the series and the book, it's going to be a little harder for him to escape mm -mm. <laughs> my renown. <laughs> That's um, amazing. It's all, it's all fine. You know, it's just the cherry on top. Not that I'm doing it for anybody at this point. Of course, but it's okay for it to just feel good. That's, that's reasonable. We feel good for you. I have a question. Do you feel like you were lacking ambition at the time? And that this motive, is this the thing that gave you ambition? Or do you think you already had ambition? You just hadn't been able to find the methods to channel it yet. You know, it takes so much overcoming of people telling you you can't do it to say, I'm going to do it. I saw a lot of people in college who felt entitled to take creative writing classes and felt confident enough that they could say, after I graduate, I'm going to do an MFV program. I continue to say this for people with less privilege. Um, in order for you to even conceive of yourself as a working artist in your early 20s, it means you're coming from a privileged background. Um, if you're an immigrant, as I was, all you want to do is just start, like, start working for a company at an entry-level position and make salary and health insurance. Mm -hmm. You don't think I'm... I'm entitled to go to an MFA. What if that doesn't work out? Who's going to pay for the MFA tuition? Mm -hmm. That confidence was really not in me. So if this guy hadn't kicked my butt, then I might not have said, I really, really want to write a book. So he did play a really important role in getting my literary career up to ground. However, I do have to say, I had the materials and this person gave me the reason to use it. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, so maybe we're not casting the villain story, but it is the origin story. It's your origin story in a way. And like, he, like, like villain light, diet villain. <laughs> yeah, he's a diet villain. Yes, that's the perfect way to put it. Okay. Villain zero. It. <laughs> Fat free villain. I mean, also, you know, as you said, this was a very intense and intimate experience of love, and you'll still categorize it as love. And there is so much, so much of this book is love story, right? There are, there are several different love stories in it. And so not only, I suppose, was his motivation, was did he motivate you to kind of get the book done? But like, is there some of that in that those experiences of love, no matter how terrible they are, they still have informed some of your character's experiences, right? That's exactly right. He gave me a lot of life experience, honestly, and that needed to go somewhere. So I had to write that story. And you also have a character who talks about revenge at one point, I think, who talks about the sweetness of like feeling mm -hmm. revenge. Mm -hmm. Was that in part you thinking, because I can't wait till he picks up this book. 
I wrote that line after that experience of responding to his DM because it honestly, it felt like revenge was heroin shooting straight through my veins. And I know that's very dirty thing to be saying. I don't know if you want to scrap but it But you out. were high. I was so high and my whole body, by the way, I've never done drugs, so I don't know what that <laughs> feels like. But if I did, it would be vibrating, vibrating, you know, like you feel like you're running on liquid gold. That's how I felt. Now, here's the question. Do we think Diet Villain has read the book? Do we know and do we think? Oh, I can't know. I have no contact with him. I know you guys Googled him. <laughs> yes, we did Google him. I have to admit it. <laughs> it's the first thing I, I have mean, to do. I might have. I might have also. I, I have, <laughs> So I don't do that to myself. I, I know friends who look up their exes. I just don't. I mean, ever since I found that out about his, you know, lady friend, who the Korean lady friend, I refuse to look him up under any circumstances, because I have too much pride. It also, it never ends well. I recently stumbled upon my high school boyfriend's Instagram, which only had like two photos. And I looked to see who he was following. And his like top three was Donald Trump, Joe Rogan, and Tucker Carlson. That's disappointing. So I was like, you know what? Not going to request. Looks like we do not have anything in common. Of course, I sent a screenshot to my other friends from high school. And my my bestie, Matt, had the best line. He said, unfortunately, he does look good. Um, <laughs> I, hilarious. I and hate to tell it. you this, but... Unfortunately, he does look good. And then we just walked away. Because why? What am I going to do? I don't want to strike up a conversation no, with you. You know, there's nothing to have there. So you're smart. We're allowed to Google on your behalf. And I'm telling you, he's read the book. It's possible. I'm, it's happened. He's definitely read it. He's definitely read and it. And you know what? If he did, he had a real treat. Because it's amazing. Yeah. I will say. Oh, see? <laughs> Worked out. It's a really great book. And even the diet villain could learn something from that book. So we all can. I love this. I love that. And also, I just love that you're willing to share this with us because I feel like it is a story that so many people can relate to. What I love about this story most, I think, and maybe this is just coming from my experience, I have dated a lot of musicians in my past, and then that one finance guy, disaster. Disaster. (sighs) Terrible love bomb there. But the problem with the musicians is that I ended up in a lot of songs as a result. So I, and like, then you're... Fiona is a muse. (laughs) Well, but see, that's not, you want to be the writer, not the written about. Mm. That's the thing. And especially as a woman, I feel like you've really sort of, turned that trope on its head and I really salute you for it. It was a feminist move and I love it. So I love that. And I want to say this to all the, you know, struggling artists, listeners, don't be intimidated by these people who, who only estimate your value based on your material possessions or, you know, even, even your CV, like who cares, hold your head up and continue creating and do it for you. And don't let it crush you. Because if I had let that crush me, then I don't know where I'd be. But I always thought, well, I'm a queen. And he just said no to a queen. Well, (laughs) that's just silly. I want to channel that. I love that. It's so sweet. And it's so true. And the other thing I always we say in our house a lot is ambition is sexy. Doesn't even mean that everything has to turn out perfectly. But it's that you are trying. You know, it's tough. Because Eden, you mentioned earlier that boyfriend who seemed to be threatened by your smarts Mm -hmm. and ambition so it's like as women we can't ever be just perfect you're either too ambitious and too successful or you're not successful enough yep 
And, uh, you know, the right person will let you be exactly the way you should be. Uh, I also want to say more to the extent that, um, you know, we talked about how journalism pays very little and now Juhei is very successful, yay. But even though this is being turned into a series, that's not a life-changing sum. I mean, it can be depending on how successful the series is. If you are a commanding enough author that they build in a profit share into the contract, then uh, depending on how successful the series is, you can make a sizable money. But even then, it's not like uh, the money that a billionaire makes or like a hedge funder makes or even like a very successful corporate lawyer makes. Mm -hmm. So I don't think any author does this for the money. Don't be hung up on the success and don't be thinking, I'm going to sell tons of books. Even though I did write this book to seek revenge. I also didn't anticipate this to sell well. I only wanted to write the best book that I ever could. I I actually, my personal goal for the sales of this book was 5,000 copies, but it has I far think you nailed that. that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, I only wanted to do something that wasn't like absolutely shameful, but I hope that you're not hung up on the money part because to me, even if everything goes away tomorrow and I don't have any money, no money coming in from royalties or series adaptation or whatever, I don't care because I put out something and that's not something anybody can take away from me. Nope. <laughs> totally. It's just done and, and out in the world. it doesn't even matter. It's funny that like you're motivated by this thing and now you're like, I don't even care about diet villain anymore. Like that's, that's, this took on its own life way beyond that motivating force. And yeah. Doesn't like, even matter. Yeah, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You don't matter, diet villain. Just saying. <laughs> oh. <laughs> wow, Juhei, I could talk to you all day about this. It's brilliant. Um, but I guess we should wrap up. And I want to thank you again for coming into our studio and joining us. And want to tell all our listeners that you can find Juhei at juheikim.com or on Instagram at juhei underscore rights. Or, and I really do recommend that you pick up The Extraordinary Beasts of a Little Land at a bookstore near you because the paperbacks are just out, just recently out. So you can find it in hardback, you can find it in paperback, but you can definitely find it and you should. I highly recommend it. And that's it from We Can Print This for today. You will find us, Eden and I, at WeCanPrintThis.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at WeCanPrintThis. And tell all your friends to listen to us, please. Thank you to our producer, Miranda Schaefer, and to our friend, Dave Depper, for our opening music. This podcast was recorded at the Writer's Block in downtown Portland, Oregon. Thank you to Monica Geller for her support there, and to our third work wife, Rachel Ritchie, who puts up with us having meetings in our office all day long. Thanks, Rachel. And if you've got a great behind-the-story story and you want to be on this podcast, you should be so lucky. Just kidding. You can write to us at wecanprintthis at gmail.com. Thank you. Thanks, Juhei. Thank Thanks, you. Juhei. That was awesome.